Welcome to Peace Lab Podcast. Each week, we will explore how we can create more well-being and positive changes through ancient wisdom and contemporary science. We will also share the unique stories of individuals who are already doing so to create more peace and joy for themselves and also for others. I am your host, Elva Zhang. So now let's begin. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Peace Lab Conversation. Today, I have a special guest, Dr. Rudy Lope. Is it Lopez? How you pronounce your surname, Rudy? Usually pronounced Lopez, yeah, with an S. Do you, are you related to Jennifer Lopez then? No, my bum's much cuter. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> oh, I can already think it's going to be a really fun conversation today. <laughs> now, um, um, Dr. Rudy, I will let yourself introduce yourself a little bit more um, before getting into our the formality of our usual peace lab conversation. Um, okay, Elva, thank you so much for this opportunity um, to to share. Um, it's it's very kind of you to give me this opportunity. Um, I am 49 years old. I was born in Malaysia a very long time ago, and I came to Australia when I was 16. Right. Um, and I did year 11 and year 12 here, um, and fortunately did well enough to get into medicine at Monash University. And then after, after medicine, um, I specialized in obstetrics and gynecology. And after specialization, I guess I practiced as an obstetrician and a gynecologist for about um, 13 years. Um, and I guess, you know, there was a bit of a process and I realized that obstetrics and gynecology wasn't something that I wanted to stay in forever. So I took a, a bit of a break from clinical work and I went on to study a master's in public health. Um, and so I'm currently in the public health field. Um, but uh, along with that, I guess, and, and part of the reason why you and I have connected through uh, a very special friend um, um, uh, is because I've also started um, a journey of, you know, mindfulness, meditation, and really trying to see if um, I can give a bit of myself back to myself. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and uh, you know, that, 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 that's certainly something that, that's up for discussion today as well. So yeah. that's who I am in a nutshell. Thank you. Um, you're probably the first guest specified how old they are. <laughs> <laughs> that was very precise. Very precise. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very precise move, um, Dr. Rudy. Um, wow, welcome today. And uh, before we start, um, I normally do this little, not the ritual, but I just invite my guests and I, we just get into a very uh, short meditation. And you mentioned now you are seasoned the meditator, just for a couple of minutes and gather our attention, intention, set an intention. Would you like to do that with me? I would love to. Yeah, wonderful. So we're both just sitting comfortably and you know the drill. And just close your eyes and breathe very naturally. I invite yourself and myself and anyone who is listening. Place your attention in the one spot around your body. I tend to place that around my belly button so I can feel the rising and the falling of your own abdomen. Breathing in and out. In and out. I often imagine this movement like a gentle ocean waves while I walk on the beach on a beautiful morning. So the waves coming and out. I may even imagine my feet are dipped in the ocean water, so refreshing, a bit cooling, yet it felt I'm being rejuvenated by the salty natural water from the Mother Earth. You can feel the rising and the falling of your shoulders. 
the slight contraction and expansion of your chest, and then the movement of our belly. We do this so many times throughout the day without our conscious instruction. And that's the beauty of the innate intelligence of our body. We don't need to tell our body to breathe, to continue beat the heart for us. It just does. And the trillions of the cells in our body, they just work together. So what a magic our body is. With this sense of gratitude, let's take another deep breath in. And out. Breathe in and out. And as we are here, Rudy, I invite you to set an intention for this conversation. It might be a word dropped in your mind. Doesn't really matter. Let's allow that sense of whatever sensation or emotions coming to us. For me, it's the word fun. I guess even though, you know, we might be talking about serious com conversation topics about medicine, medical system, but somehow it's going to be fun. And when you're ready, take another deep breath in and you can return to the screen. Welcome again, Rudy. Very yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, just that word fun popped in, in my head. I want to share yeah. that with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I want to go back a little bit more about yourself. You know, you already uh, shared with us. You came from Malaysia. Um, I guess for a lot of doctors I know, there's always a particular, not all of them, but most of them always have a special reason why they want to pursue medicine. Like myself, I'm a lawyer. I always felt um, at law school, you know, a large chunk of the law students, very young and um, driven. There's a particular purpose, a lot of time linked with changing the world, right? So I'm curious, when you were younger, when you decided to study medicine, what just happened or some other reason, impetus for that? <laughs> well, um, it doesn't help that uh, both my parents are doctors. <laughs> so um, my my mum was um, a hematologist, worked in a hematology lab, and uh, my dad was a doctor in the army. Uh, so I guess you you grow up with the expectation that you know, oh, look, you know, they they had very nice careers, very successful careers. Uh, we weren't particularly rich um, um, because both of them worked in the public service, um, but but it was fulfilling. And I guess I sort of fell into it. I, um, when I was a teenager, I used to love computers a lot, and I still do. Um, but I was a bit of a geek as a teenager. But I thought that was what I was going to study, and that was what I was going to do. Um, I guess I was pleasantly surprised at my marks. And my dad, I remember my dad calling me up and saying, um, you've got enough marks to get into medicine. Why don't you at least give it a go? even though, you know, um, you put down computers at your first preference, just give it a go and, and see whether you like it or not. Um, and I did, I followed his advice. He wasn't pressuring me. There was no pressure yeah. to do medicine. It was just, you know, uh, you sort of wanted to do computers, but you've also sort of always liked medicine. <clears throat> um, so why don't you give it a go? And I did. And Elva, I can remember the day I was uh, in third year medicine and um, I was taking a, a history from a patient. Um, it was late at night. It was eight, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. We had to get ready for, uh, uh, this patient was getting ready for surgery the next day. 
and we were discussing aspects of her life and and that was my that was my moment that was when i realized hang on this is this is pretty intimate stuff um and i'm so privileged to be in this position where you know we're discussing your life and and hopefully i'm going to make a contribution to getting you better um and that was just such a powerful moment for me that's when i said right this is what i'm going to do this this is you know the computers can computers don't <laughs> <back to> you <laughs> yeah, yeah okay well, well they do they do but then it's garbage in garbage out <laughs> whereas where people talking to you that that's different that that's really powerful them sharing their their stories them coming to you in a sense um wanting to get better mm. uh and you having um some ability it's not a perfect ability medicine is not perfect uh, but some ability to perhaps make their lives better mm. um and and that that moment in third year was that watershed moment for me when i never looked back i said you know maybe i was just there uh, to satisfy myself and my dad whether or not i wanted to do medicine but that point from that point onwards it was all for me wow um, wow for me yeah. um and then uh, uh, another question would be you know why obstetrics why obstetrics and gynecology and uh, uh, that was also another very powerful moment. Um, I uh, watched my first birth, um, and it was with a very, very senior consultant. Uh, this was at Monash. I can still remember the labor ward room. I can still remember the, the people there. It was just amazing. It was late in the evening. Again, things happen late in the evening, Elva. <laughs> Especially on the full moon, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe it was full moon. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we were looking out over what was then the Fregon Reserve. It's not there anymore. It's where mm -hmm. the current children's hospital is. Um, and um, I remember, you know, this was a very senior consultant. So he'd done hundreds of thousands, well, not hundreds of thousands, but a lot of deliveries. And uh, we were both on the floor and, and, and the woman, um, you know, um, pushed the baby out and the consultant took the baby and gave the baby to mum. And mum and dad were obviously very happy. And whilst they were enjoying the birth of the baby, I looked over at the consultant. Uh, now, remember, this is a very senior man. This is someone who's been there, done that, done it all. He's actually written a couple of textbooks about it. So, you know, a uh, very, very senior. And he had this far off, placid, wistful, you know, very joyous, still in awe, look on his face and I thought to myself how can you do a hundred thousand deliveries and still look like that you know what's what's so special about this that you still are captivated by the magic of it and, and I, I mean not to say that I wasn't captivated by the magic of it but you know to to see that still being shared by someone so senior was um, again a pretty watershed sort of moment so so I thought uh maybe I should look into this, yeah. uh, into this subject a little bit more. And, and for some reason, everything that I learned, I just wanted to know more yeah. and more and know more. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a chore to me. You know, I got a distinction for the subject. I really loved it. And, um, and yeah, from that point on, that's what I wanted to do. For me, my understanding and appreciation of obstruction is from the TV Offspring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I loved it. I thought that's a what I mean, of course, you know, for someone who's not working in the field, you can tell it's not true a lot of times. But for someone watching that show and leaving aside the comedy, yes. I thought that was a just amazing job to welcome babies to the world, you know. And I loved that show for a number of years, even when I was studying overseas. I would try to watch watch a few episodes here now and then. Yeah. I guess that yes. I, I guess that sense of welcoming a new life yes. to the world even as someone going to the hospital to visit i guess the only reason why i'm going there happy is when i go there to visit my friends correct. and babies correct it's a, a completely different sensation you know and um, yeah it's just like so much hope and expectation excitement and so yeah but now onto your recent journey and what made you to the public health masters? It's um, I went from a private practice and moving towards um, a public health system is quite different. And um, yeah, if you don't mind sharing with us. Yeah, so that sort of like in the last um, two or three years before 2018, I guess 
um, there was, uh, you know, there was increasing pressure. Um, it is a very pressure intensive sort of field. Uh, in a sense, you always have to perform at 100%. Um, patients were more demanding, um, I guess, uh, you know, they have every right to be. Um, but I guess after living such a frenetic life for such a long time, um, I was getting tired, probably not so much physically tired, but emotionally tired. It is, uh, you know, whereas it's a good, it's a good profession and, you know, there are lots of emotional highs, uh, there are also some emotional lows. Now, I did say my dad was a doctor, but I didn't say what sort of a doctor he was. He was a public health doctor. So he was more like an administrator. And his comment to me, even, even as a child, was it's always far more intellectually stimulating looking after the health of a community rather than one person at a time. And I guess I never quite understood that. But, you know, I was getting to that point in time where it was getting harder and harder looking after one person at a time because you had to give so much to that one person. And obviously as the practice builds up, there are more and more and more people to look, after, to, to look after. So I took a step back and I said, well, maybe it's time for me to give myself a little bit more um, uh, to a community rather than one person at a time. Um, and I guess that's where I thought, well, the only way to do that is through public health. Um, and um, I, there, there are, um, um, your audience may know there's about, uh, each university actually has its own public health course. Um, the, the two best ones, obviously, are Monash and Melbourne, and, uh, but Deakin and Latrobe all have um, public health related courses as well. <clears throat> but I picked the, Mon the, the Melbourne course because uh, they had a huge sexual and reproductive health component. Um, and uh, that was something that I was keenly interested in, of course, given my background. So, so I did the course at Melbourne Uni. I started middle of 2018 and it was everything I wanted it to be. Um, I, uh, I, I went in saying, I'm only going to study sexual and reproductive health because that's all I know. Um, but there's so many other aspects to public health that I never, never knew about. And uh, I was very interested in global health. So, you know, we, we are so lucky um, at how good our health system is here in Australia. We, we just do not understand the health systems in other countries. Um, and, and to know how our health system came to be the way it is, where it's a mixture of public and private. Um, there's a mixture of, you know, we pay our Medicare taxes towards health, but there's also the government gives a lot more back and we still can pay for our own bit if we want to. Um, um, to know that it's such a good health system and, mm. and we can help the, uh, the health of its people. I'm almost, you know, I almost want to say, hey, look, this is what the whole world should be doing. Why isn't the whole world doing this? Wow, that's a very powerful realization because now we're in the midst of 2020. Yeah. We're in a global pandemic system. And that contrast, I imagine you would even feel even more poignantly for you, <laughs> almost like a real manifestation of what you study in real life and in a hundred years' time. Um, yeah, so. I remember a couple of years ago, I watched that documentary by the Hollywood American director, uh, Michael Moore. I think he yeah. did a comparison um, of the American, Canadian NHS in the UK. Mm. And then what he did was very drastic. He took some of the uh, American, I think 911 firefighters to, <laughs> to Cuba yes. to demonstrate a point how um, Cuba, um, which as we all know that American has been years had embargo on them, has actually a very good public health system and better even than America. Mm. So, so the beauty, we did actually study the Cuban health system for a little bit. And one of the takeaway points I got from studying uh, American systems, the Cuban systems, is um, for the amount of money spent per person, uh, the American life expectancy is about here, uh, but Cuba spends much less money and has a higher life expectancy. So, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, greater life expectancy doesn't mean better health system necessarily. Um, we've got to understand that. It's also the quality of life and the quality of all sorts of other things that go on. But for me to see that, um, 
and for me to know that there are sections of American society which do not get healthcare. They simply do not get mm -hmm. healthcare. Uh, I'm on Reddit a fair bit. Um, and on Reddit, there are, um, um, you know, um, um, groups that ask for help, for, for health help. You know, I've got a pain here, I've got a lump there, uh, you know, what do you think it is? And more often than not, they come to Reddit because in their comments, they're saying, I can't afford to see a doctor. Wow. I don't have the money to see a doctor or I'm unemployed and I can't afford a doctor. And so, you know, obviously you can't do very much over the internet. You can say, well, there's probably this and try that. But most of the time I'm going to have to say, <clears throat> I, I cannot help you. You need to see a doctor or a nurse or, you know, go to one of the Medicaid hospitals and get some sort of care. And it, it really saddens my heart. And, and obviously it doesn't just happen in the US. And, uh, you know, think about the um, um, places like India, um, places like China, um, um, and I'm sure there are places in Russia, uh, a lot of Africa, a lot of South America, where the same thing happens, where it's not so much that people can't afford healthcare, it's that they don't have a functional healthcare system that allows them to look after the health of the population. Yeah, and that's a very good point. Also a segue to my next question. The transition question I wanted to use is actually going back to Cuba at a very broad level, because, you know, I'm studying a neuroscience master's with King mm -hmm. College London. I just I finished... I'm to call you master, Elva. <laughs> and I just finished a subject on, on mental health care in the community. Mm -hmm. And I remember this conversation we had about Cuban and American system. Yes. And when I was writing my um, the, the essay I was um, finishing up with, we were talking about uh, mental health care and then there was articles about in Cuba because they are limited in their resources compared to American system, which has a high budget for mental health care. Mm -hmm. They focus on prevention. Correct. So rather than medication at the end, allopathic traditional Western medicine, but literally is out of necessity and the limited resources. What they had to do is really focusing on before you getting there. Correct. So as a result of that, they have a much more healthier, mentally and emotionally healthy individuals in the community, you know. Mm -hmm. So that is something I wanted to transition, you know, to mm -hmm. the next question. Um, yourself, I think your, your, if you don't mind me asking, your cultural background is Indian Malaysian, is that right? Yeah. That's right. And then you also, of course, you grew up in the Western medicine system. And Correct. Now you're studying and you um, cultivating mindfulness and meditation. I'm curious um, with your own background, life experiences, professional um, expertise, how do you see the um, differences or the disparity dichotomy? Or do you see there's a synergy between maybe the more uh, contemporary Western medicine and the more ancient or traditional Eastern medicine? I'm just curious on this point. So there's, there's many ways we can attack this question. Mm. Um, um, I think the simplest way for me to say it is that a lot of, a lot of, West, a lot of Eastern medicine is built on um, what's worked and what hasn't. Yeah. It's, it's very traditional. Um, but it's traditional over eons, like we're talking thousands of years. Uh, uh, the Chinese tradition of acupuncture has been around for about, you know, three, three and a half, four thousand years. Um, it's antiquity. <laughs> antiquity. Indians have um, Ayurveda I... medication um, and, and systems, and, and that's been around for just as long. Mm -hmm. um, the Aboriginal people of Australia have got um, you know, a 40,000 year history of cultural medicines. We've lost a lot of that um, wow. because of Western civilization and uh, the fact that a lot of Aboriginal history is oral and not written down. That's right. So, uh, unfortunately, we've lost a lot of that stuff. But, you know, the same thing will happen in any civilization, such as the African civilization mm. and the South American Mayans and Incans, uh, Aztecs there's a huge tradition of medicine. Um, Western medicine is good um, because everything needs to be rigorously tested before mm. it's let loose on the population. Yeah. 
And to me, that's the biggest difference that I see between traditional medicines, whichever, whichever type it is, and Western medicine, that, that there is a huge onus, uh, partly driven by lawyers, of course, <laughs> to, to make sure that we use the right medicines and the right forms of treatment on the right person at the right time. So, yeah. so we, we've invented or we've perfected the randomized control. Control, yeah. To, to try and differentiate what really does work and what does not. Whereas a lot of Eastern medicine is much, much more empirical. Mm. It's much, much more intuitive. Yep. It's much, much more about the practitioner and the, the patient, for want of a better word, um, being in tune with each other and working out what's wrong with them. Yeah. And I think one thing I've noticed because I grew up in mainland China as a child, um, even a society like Chinese society, but because the contemporary advancement in the Western medicine, we've lost a lot of the traditional, the essence of traditional Chinese medicine. What I found really surprising is coming to Australia, there is actually a quite a huge respect among even the, um, you know, the Western um, practitioners who would study Chinese medicine. For me personally, of course, you know, um, I see the key difference is going back to what we talked about preventative yes. philosophy of, um, I can't really speak for, uh, you know, the other type of um, um, ancient medicine, but for Chinese medicine, it's very much focused on that preventative. Mm -hmm. you know, it has a lot to do with that holistic concept. So because in Chinese medicine, which originate from the Chinese Taoism, it talks about a human being as a totality of your mm -hmm. thoughts, your feelings, you know, and so, and then that concept of energy, which in the Western medicine doesn't make sense, and it cannot be really measured um, precisely until uh, to date. So for us, that concept of energy or what we call qi is really how we think, how we feel, and that stuck emotion. So in mm -hmm. a way, I always found in that East tradition, there's a lot to do with mental health. Mm -hmm. So in the Western tradition, there's a kind of, oh, there's a mental health, there's a physical disease, which are measured by bowel, a very obvious like physical symptoms. But yeah. in the Chinese medicine, even the organs, the major organs, they're divided, they're representing uh, major emotions you never clicked with me as a child I thought oh, that was airy fairy stuff but now you know because I'm very interested about mental health about um, well-being and also in the past few decades you know and WHO and there's more and more research shows that stress depression in particular as mental illness is one of the major um, killers of the, the, our life, quality of life, but also, you know, the, the, the longitude of the life as well. So in that sense, I do think there's a closer and closer link, you know, between what we can see, the physical illness, and what we can't see, you know, the mental health. What's your view on that, Dr. Rudy? I agree, Elva. I think, um, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think there is um, so much more about the mind-body connection um, and from what I've learned from my meditation mindfulness, what I've sort of come across is, is that we're, you know, we're the children of the universe. Um, and <clears throat> I think, um, uh, and of course, this is stuff that I can't prove, of course, but I do think that, you know, when we become ill, it's really a reflection of the universe being unwell. I like as a doctor is talking to me about being a children of the universe. I think that's your moment of coming out of closet. Well done. <laughs> that's right. I'm a lawyer. I've already come out. I'm like, yeah, we are the children of the, uh, you know, galaxy. I like that. Sorry to interrupt. I have to like, you know, kind of a, I told you it's going to be fun conversation. I wasn't lying. My intention was right, right? <laughs> no, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Um, so following on from that, I actually see quite a lot of that, in my opinion, um, <clears throat> to be able to practice. Well, you can see it in so many different ways. So to be able to practice prevention, that is the that is the core of public health. Right. Public health is actually about uh, it's as much as treating health, but but it's actually about making people live as healthy a life as possible so that their quality of life is as good for as long as possible. That's what public health is about. And the problem is that we don't spend enough money on prevention. Right. So it's, a, it's not about disease. So you're saying it's not about treating disease. You should be focusing on 
like creating wellness. Is that right? Correct. Am exactly. I right? Exactly right. Because the problem is that we don't see, <clears throat> the problem is that we have a democracy. And with democracy, you're going to vote for someone because they built the nice, best hospital. Or they put, you know, 3,000 doctors and 30,000 nurses on staff. Whereas that's not what it's about. A hospital is treating some, someone at the end of the process. Mm -hmm. It's not a process to prevent disease. It's there for treating disease. So mm -hmm. if you were serious about public health, you would actually not build hospitals. You would actually build and fund GPs and nurses to look after people and prevent them from getting unwell. You would fund education programs that teach children how to look after themselves physically, how to be active, to not be on the computer all the yeah. time like my two sons are, um, um, and, and be out there and play sport and get involved and, you know, build a social network because that also helps with mental health. Mm. So all those preventive activities are often not funded because they're not visible. That's, I think that's the key thing. We tend to have these biases towards disease, which is rightfully so. You know, you see people suffering. However, we ignore, before we get into that stage of dis-ease or disease, there's mm -hmm. so much more can be done here. Correct. I think that's one area as you said, you know, unfortunately, our political system, no matter where you are around the globe, you know, regardless what type of system you are, it does have that preference for disease model. Mm -hmm. And I think that will be an earth shattering kind of a structural change if we change from a disease model, as you mentioned before, treating disease to actually to a cultivating a wellness model, right? right. That will be the ideal. That's in my view, utopia, you know, if we can cultivate focus on cultivated wellness still have and i'm sure we'll still have a small proportion for treating disease but for the majority of the funding and the resources are exerted on wellness prevention mm -hmm. then they'll reduce the funding uh, reduce the necessity for disease am i too mm -hmm. idealistic in that regard dr Ruby? no that's exactly what i think as well elva i think we're spending far too much money on treatment of disease and not enough money on prevention of disease but there are so many vested interests of course. here. And, and this is part of the difficulty, even something like diabetes, for example. <clears throat> okay, so what's one of the problems? One, diabetes is a big problem. But let, let's look at it simply. One problem with diabetes is there's just too much sugar out there. Mm. Uh, there's too much carbohydrates, there's too much breads and stuff, which, which are very attractive and appealing to us or have been made attractive and appealing to us. Mm. Whereas, you know, Brussels sprouts and, and cucumbers aren't that attractive to us, whereas they should be. Mm. So, so we've got this warped way of looking at, for example, food. Um, and, and if we were to promote wellness, we should be promoting wellness, promoting foods. Yeah. But the big companies don't do that. Yeah. They put one syrup and they put sugar and they put salt and they make food look look really pretty with preservatives um and we have antibiotics and and all sorts of stuff in the food which i suspect is what's making us unwell mm. but but it's there for a reason and i can understand the reason you know there are huge supply chains for example and, and a lot of these foods come to us after a very long journey. And, and part of the reason is because we've got such a large population. So there's so many things linked into this. Yeah. Um, um, so let's go back to America for a second. So big companies derive their profits almost by keeping us unwell. Mm. Tobacco, for example, how are you going to get rid of tobacco? If you could get rid of tobacco, you would massively crush the amount of lung cancer, oral cancers, throat cancers, and we think vulval and cervical cancers. You could smash all that because there is a carcinogen out there which shouldn't be out there um, or at the very least should be 
you know, very, very indirectly recreational. You know, there's not to say completely eliminated, but the focus and the balance is wrong. Yeah, the balance, yep. Mm. Um, even something like, um, uh, so, so the problem with developing a medicine uh, or even developing a vaccine, which is a very topical issue, uh, maybe not for the COVID vaccine, but certainly for other vaccines, you've got to have a return in your investment. Mm. And, 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 and millions upon millions are spent on developing a drug or developing a vaccine. And so the drug companies want that money back, rightly so, because it's got to be a business. Yeah. But wrongly so, because then they, they allow this to perpetuate and they have to find ways of making money in order to allow that to be funded. Mm. So it's almost as if, you know, we've got our priorities wrong. Um, yeah. Um, I and think if I may add, I just think, you know, as you said, the collectively, the structurally, if you talk about public health, the priority is not in balance. But mm -hmm. would you say that we can't wait for the system to change? Do you think the personal responsibility is important? Yeah, like yeah. What we can do for ourselves, you know, yeah. rather than waiting for the... Um, that more healthy living ad to come out like it could be another 50 years you know what's your, what's your view on that what's as you know in terms of the personal health in this environment of public health how important is our own discernment and our own action I fully believe that every individual is responsible for their own health mm, okay but there's still a limit so you yeah. have one up in a village in Somalia um, how are they going to avoid the open sewers that are, you know, the drainage systems? How are they going to avoid malnutrition because their father is unwell and cannot work and their mother has to feed three or four other children? So <clears throat> there are still social determinants of health. Yeah. And there is an inequitable distribution of wealth. Yeah. Um, and to the point where we're not looking after the most vulnerable sectors of the society and their health is being affected. Another really big determinant of health um, at this point in time is air pollution. Mm. Air pollution kills significantly. Um, it kills in a lot of ways, asthma, um, um, smoke inhalation, um, carcinogens and toxins in, in the airstream, which we're breathing in and therefore going on to cause all sorts of different diseases. But think about that for a minute. Where does the air pollution come from? Well, okay, let's talk about India, for example, or China. One of the sources of air pollution is traffic. Yeah. So there's a lot of traffic on the road. How are you going to reduce the air pollution from traffic? Well, you can't like tell everyone to drive electric cars, not feasible. You try and improve the road so that the traffic isn't jammed, so that it, you know a stationary car produces more um, um, exhaust than a moving car. Um, um, but you're going to have to redesign all the roads. You're going to have to make them wider. You're going to have to get people to not drive. What are you going to do? There are huge, you know, things that you have an individual may have no control over. Mm -mm. Um, and I think, I, think, I think we should be able to, I don't know how it's going to be done, but, but mm. if so much has to change yeah. to allow an individual to, um, to have more control mm. over their own health. I know I can control my health. Mm. I know that I can eat the right foods. I can drink a lot less alcohol. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Um, I can eat less sugar, um, I have a sweet tooth, I can exercise a bit more, I can control those, and I can perform uh, meditation, mindfulness, and, and, and protect myself mentally. But those are the things I can control. I mm -hmm. cannot control the air pollution levels. I cannot control, uh, you know, the UV radiation that's out there. I cannot control uh, the amount of... Um, microwaves and radio waves that are going through our system right at this point in time. Um, so it, it's, it's hard. You, what I think needs to happen is that there needs to be a critical mass of society that then changes the entire social structure. We're, we're almost seeing that. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you think 2020 is that demarcation on that point, you know, from a critical and going back to where we started, right? Um, because we see so many, and going back to pollution, the past seven months has been quite disastrous for the humanity as a collective, but the research shows that for Mother Earth, from environmental perspective, because yeah, there's no plane really flying, not many cars on the road, so the Mother Earth is actually taking this period as a kind of a reprieve from all the damage done onto her. Mm. So that's why I wanted to ask you when you were talking about that. Do you mm. think somehow in this sense, leaving aside a human suffering um, for a lot of people around the world, but do you think there's a hidden blessing for that? You know what? The society survived. Yeah. You know, we as a as a as a civilization have survived. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Industry needs to come back on because yep. people need jobs. People need jobs because people need money. People yep. need money so that they can buy the goods that they need to live. Um, what if we didn't have money? That's the, another topic for another two hours, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm I'm very inspired by something like Star Trek, and and you know, the inspirational thing about Star Trek is there is no money, um, um, because you know, obviously they've reached a state of social consciousness, yeah, where money does not drive them, but you know, knowledge and the fulfillment of knowledge is what's driving the civilization in, in Trek. So that's why they can build these ships, which must cost trillions of dollars. But in if human the money, terms. Sorry? In human terms, cost in trillions. Human terms, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, but if money's not an issue, um, then of course, you know, um, the pursuit of knowledge, um, um, you know, wanting to do your best for your common man and woman, uh, if that becomes your goal, if, if that is what drives you, not you as an individual, but you as a society, yeah. as a culture, as a civilization, um, I think that's that's the point that we need to get to. Wow. Okay. Yet, no. Not yet. I think then if we're talking about from that level of consciousness and awareness, it will take a while. But mm. I guess the change starts from each one of us and yeah. uh, to reach that critical mass. And I, I do think, you know, 2020 is kind of taking us towards something, you know, from the darkness, but to, towards the positive side. I can yeah. see people are rising up and have different perceptions, even like around working arrangements, you know, after COVID, more mm. flexible working arrangements. People realize what is more important to live a life or work for life. You know, Correct. so small steps, I think we will get there. Now, I just want to go back to one point, Dr. Rudy. You mm. mentioned about you start taking on mindfulness meditation to self-care. How is that going? Because you're <laughs> obviously very passionate about the world. You can tell that passion, your drive from your, you know, the conversation which is held. But I'm curious, mm. though, the, the break you're taking and uh, have you been... At, good and becoming more and more like um, self-caring towards yourself after I think, I think I could be a whole lot better Elva I think I could be a whole lot better so in the last couple of months I've probably lapsed a little bit on my mindfulness journey um, I started off so one thing I must say um, um, many 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 years ago uh, when I was sort of like questioning the whole meaning of life and I was, you know, sort of like in my 20s, I think. Uh, gee, that was a long time ago. Before you were born, Elva. <laughs> I, I think I was born. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I came across a book and it was, it was really very, you know, I, I truly believe that the universe puts things in our ways for a reason. I, I, I believe... It's definitely. You know, with the universe puts people in our parts for a reason. I believe uh, the universe puts. I I had just had um, a massive fight uh, with my family. I, I'd stormed out and I was just walking uh, through the shopping mall. And because I was still a nerd, then I uh, dropped into this bookstore. And I wasn't looking for any particular book. I was just looking for, you know, something to distract my mind. And I got hold of this book, and you probably know it, um, but it was Conversations with God. 
Oh yes, of course, uh, classic. The Neil Donald Walsh. Yep. And uh, everything in that book was exactly almost the conclusion that I had come to myself or mm. was articulating what I was feeling on an intuitive level. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't actually have the words for it, but what I read in that book was the words that I was looking for to, to, to say what I was feeling. Needless to say, I bought that book um, and I still have it. Um, but that was the start of my journey of me taking a step back and saying, there's a bigger picture here. Mm. Um, and that book was, you know, there's lots of watershed moments in my life, but that was one watershed moment where I suddenly realized that all of us or the people that I was hanging out with at that point in time, perhaps the message we got was wrong mm. or, or the message we got wasn't the whole message, that there was a bigger message there that if we could all just say it at the same time, it would be so much more powerful. Mm. Mm. Um, and of course, there were other books, but they weren't probably as powerful as that first book um, um, that started me on that journey. So I guess I've been doing this degree of meditation, mindfulness. Already, yeah. Yeah, but, but to a small extent, not a big extent, a small extent. In the last two to three years, uh, you know, since I've stopped clinical work, I've had more time to focus on that. And and the benefits are enormous. I'm... I'm I think, I, I don't know, you'd have to ask my wife and children, but I think I'm a lot calmer. <laughs> I, think, I think things don't stress me out as much. I think, you know, one of the teachings of the Buddha is that of impermanence. Of you, need, you need to learn to let go. Mm. It's frustrating for me, though, I've got to say. If you can let go, then sometimes you have to say that, whatever happens so as doctors we want to control the situation we want yep. to always do our best we always want a 100 percent outcome but that's not how the universe works mm. uh, you know the universe gives us the right outcome for us at that point in time uh, or at least that's my belief I'm, I'm sorry so if something goes wrong if you know if something goes badly wrong and i've been involved in you know a couple of medical issues where you know things have really really gone badly uh part of the reason why i had to take a step back and say well maybe i don't want to do this anymore mm. um when things go wrong okay it's bad for you personally as a doctor but my belief now is that well, the universe needs us to experience that, not just me, the doctor, but also the family and friends and all the people where that incident happened to. It's part of the whole thing. Yeah. But that's not what we do. As soon as something wrong happens, oh, well, that gets referred to the medical board, that gets referred to the court, we're going to sue the pants off you, all that kind of stuff. They want to correct the wrong somehow, but... Mm. but but the wrongs already happened and nothing can bring it back. We mm -hmm. can just learn from that event. Yeah. Learn how it's going to affect us and say, okay, now this is what we're going to do for next time. Yeah. Sorry it happened to you, but, but this is, you know, this is how life goes. Um, I think we do ourselves a disservice by not, by hanging on to things too much. I, yeah, I think that that's a very beautiful saying coming back. You mentioned our impermanence all things come and go and of course you know uh, that sense of acceptance is the greatest thing you know we all have made various degrees of mistakes or we all have the regrets in our lives you know and yeah. i guess it's a choice point i was having this conversation with a dear friend of mine recently as well you know and um, someone held a lot of self-anger towards themselves it came to the point it was so burdensome about what they have done in the past. You know, the choice is, do you carry that burden for the rest mm -hmm. of your life? Mm -hmm. Or do you make yourself, okay, I accept that part of myself. I made some mistakes, 
but now I don't want to carry anymore. Let's move on, right? And start okay. fresh. It benefits not just the person at the, you know, in, in the subject person, but really everyone around them. And then it sounds philosophical, but it has enormous, you know, um, impact and ramification for the life. And uh, yeah, so it is frustrating from a human perspective because that's why the book is called Conversation with God, right? It's not conversation with another. Joe Bloke or Ben or, or, or someone else. And I guess that broader perspective, you know, who I really felt you write that the truth, there's individual truth, there is a collective or even universal truth, which is remains a mystery to our human mind as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I'm respectful of your time, Dr. Rudy, and I know we can co- continue co- converse for the rest of the day, you know, but Thank you so much for talking to me. And I would love to have you on the podcast again. And we can talk about Star Trek and the no money system. We can invent a new system for the humanity for us to grow. (laughs) (laughs) But can we go back to impermanence for a minute? I mean, the Buddha teaches teaches us not to hold on to a piece of hot coal because we're the only ones that can burn that can burn from it you know so the anger that we have the regret that we have the anxiety that we have that's a piece of hot coal burning us in the in, in the palm of ourselves so yeah. we need to learn to let it go yeah um and, and hopefully reduce the burdens for ourselves and not harm ourselves yeah so i normally ask my guests before we conclude what is the one key message you want to leave for the listeners is that the one you want to leave us? Don't bring, don't hold on to the hot cold. <laughs> well, <clears throat> that'll do. I mean, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise it gets too much. <laughs> I, I think let's keep it. Simple. Let's leave it at that. Absolutely. It, I see a lot of patients. Um, I think they haven't accepted, um, um, you know, um, a lot of things that the body to them is something that needs to be fixed. And they forget that the fixing of the body actually sometimes begins with the fixing of the mind. But nobody wants to pay attention to the mind because it's either going to label them as crazy mm-hmm. or they don't have the time to invest in looking after their mind. Yeah. I would like to leave on that point, looking after your mind. Thank you, Dr. Rudy. It has been such a great joy to talk to you. And uh, yes, I'm sure you will be coming back to me next time around, but on a completely different topic. Time will tell, as always. Thank you so much. Yes, no worries. Thank you again for tuning in and spending time with me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to tune in again next week. And if you do have any questions and comments, please feel free to leave a message. Take care and I'll catch you at the next Peace Lab podcast.